I had unfinished business when I came back up here for grad school. And I feel like I finished that. Uh, this city has done me fairly well. It helped me rise in my tech career. It's going to be a stable base of operation, a great group of friends. Um, and the, ultimately the ability to chase what I've always wanted to do, which is write fiction. So, yeah, thanks, Boston. Hi, welcome to the Boston Speaks Up podcast. My name is Zach Servideo from Fabric Media, and I'm the podcast creator and current host, although as time goes on, I'm really looking forward to welcoming in guest hosts. Boston Speaks Up is all about connecting to and sharing the stories of the creators, the artists, the entrepreneurs in Boston, from Boston, helping inspire change from Boston. So the first podcast today is with a dear friend of mine, Dan Rowinski, the once chef uh, turned Boston Bruins beat reporter, eventually became a world-renowned tech journalist, and most recently he's been writing some books. The one that I really want to double-click on today is Muse AI. So a really interesting uh, guide to how artificial intelligence is is impacting and, and can and likely will impact our lives. Uh, so thanks for tuning in, and let's get to it. So we're here for the, the Boston Speaks Out podcast. My name's Zach Servideo. I'm your host. This is Dan Rowinski, my longtime friend, tech journalist, now book author, hoofing it to East Boston to record this podcast with me. God, it takes forever to get down here. And you love me so much that you'll do it. Oh, uh, sure. It is something particularly tough about being on the red line and going and having to get outbound on the blue line that just kind of end up, it ends up taking an hour. Yeah, the soul-crushing aspect of the commute. It's the green line. I used to have to do that all the time. The green line from Kenmore to North Station for uh, Bruins games. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that. So you were... We can go back to when you were a chef because I wanted to bring that up because uh, it's 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 an interesting journey you've taken to authoring books. But let's double click on your coverage of the Boston Bruins. That was your was that your first journalist gig? That was my first journalism gig. Um, so what happened is that uh, I was a chef for almost twelve years. Um, I started when I was 14, so I wasn't a chef the entire time, but I was in the kitchen. I eventually rose up to be a head chef. Um, and I went to undergrad in my sort of mid-ish 20s, got a degree in English and history, and realized that people who get degrees, degrees in English and history work in kitchens. Uh, so there's statistical evidence of that? <laughs> uh, empirical. <laughs> I remember looking around at my kitchen in uh, Virginia and going, turning to the wait staff and going, what, what was your major? English. What was your major? English. What was your major? English. I was like, yeah, we're all unemployed. This is great. Um, unemployable would probably be the better word there. But, uh, and so I decided to go get a degree, in, a master's degree in journalism, got into Boston University, 
uh, and I got here, and you have to remember, I had been making like lasagna for 2,000 people at a catering company like a week before I got here. Week after I got here, I ended up uh, lucking into this internship. Uh, didn't really know what it was. I knew it was covering hockey. I meet my editor, and he says, meet me at the Boston Garden. I'm like, okay. So I show up there. They have a press pass for me. I walk in. It's media day for the Bruins' new season. This would have been 2007 or eight. So <laughs> next thing I know, I go from making lasagna for 2,000 people to interviewing Cam Neely. Cam Neely, Hall of Famer, Seabass himself, is my first professional interview ever. And I'm just like, what happened? Like, I don't know how I got here. Uh, That's amazing. For those who do not follow sports, Cam Neely, number eight, one of the all-time greats for the Bruins. I think he had, like, less than a 10-year career and is still one of the all-time greats. Didn't he have a relatively short career? Yeah, it was... I can't remember the stats. It was between nine and 11 years, somewhere around there. He's a Hall of Famer, though. And hockey's like that. Like, if you put your mark down you don't necessarily need the counting stats like you wouldn't say baseball so he's the uh vp of the bruins these days and he i don't know if he's been promoted since but he was the vp back then and it was like his second season on the gig so i remember walking up to him and he's like six four i'm five ten ish so it's not necessarily that much taller than me but he just had such an outsized sort of like notion in my life Right, I grew up in the '80s watching hockey. Bobby Orr, or not Bobby Orr, uh, Adam Motes, Cam Neely, um, Ray Bork. Ray Bork. You know, Ray Bork just followed me on LinkedIn. That was weird. Really? It I, always bothered me that Ray Bork had to leave Boston, go to Colorado, win a cup with the Avalanche, and then brought the cup back to Boston. Yeah. Well, life happens. Um, I, I, his son went to to BU with me for one year. Yeah. Yeah. I think you actually told me that once, but... He was there quick and left and didn't have an NHL career, so I don't know what happened to him. So, um, was that the year the... So, what was it like covering the Bruins, and was that the year they made a cup run? Or was it the next year? No, so they made a cup run three years after that. By the time... By that time, I was in D.C. covering the Capitals and started my tech career at that point, too. Um, that was Blake Wheeler's rookie year. I think um, Milan Lucic's second year. That whole team that won the cup was young. They were very young. They were like 18 and 19. I remember uh, Milan Lucic that one time during media day, uh, one of the reporters brought him apple pies from uh, Apples in Vancouver because he was from Vancouver. He's a 19-year-old kid, might be a little homesick. So the... The reporter brought him pies. And I was just like, what is going on here? It was such a surreal world to me. Like, I didn't, I had no idea what I was stepping into. Because I literally didn't, like, know what this internship was going to be. And next thing I know, I'm in the Boston Garden. And I'm the beat reporter. Like, I'm the Boston Bruins beat reporter for this publication. Um, and that was, you know, one fortuitous step upon another fortuitous step where I just got all these opportunities that I probably didn't deserve. But uh, I definitely didn't deserve. But I'm, you know, I faked it for a while, and then I took those opportunities and started making things up. Well, deserving it is a relative is a relative way to look at it. Like you capitalized on the opportunities that came your way, and fortune followed. One curious question, and it could be 
about when you covered the Bruins or when you covered the Capitals. What kind of moments did you have when you were a beat reporter for the Bruins or Capitals that sort of equipped you to then go and deal with the egos of tech? Because that's an interesting, and I actually find it to be a logical progression that maybe many wouldn't see. But for me, and having known you a long time, I think you appreciate the meticulous detail in which you prepare and execute, I think caters itself to tech, but also catered itself really well to how you were prepared to cover the beats of these important franchises. So I'm just curious, what were the challenges you faced interviewing? Um, Well, for the first, I don't know, at least year, I kind of stumbled around a little bit um, to the point where I think a couple of the uh, senior Bruins beat writers sort of pulled me aside and said, all right, like you're kind of pissing off a player or two. Like you don't, you're not meaning to, but like you know, tone it down or you know don't try to don't try to be fake. I think like I was trying to play a role for a while, like like I not, I belong here role when I like internally, I never felt like I did at least in the beginning, um, and so. Yeah. Would that mean you were asking difficult questions or questions you felt like you were it's expected of you to ask? To a certain extent, yeah. Um, and also, there's a hierarchy in the dressing room. Like, the guys who've been there for 20 years, like, get to ask the first questions, and I'm the intern. Like, for a long time in sports journalism, and that's maybe not so much true now, it sort of is, but not as much as it used to be, is that if you're basically the rookie cup reporter, you don't say a word. Um but I didn't have a lot of guidance because my editor who brought me in actually left after the first half of the season. So I was the primary beat guy from like Christmas to the end of the, through the playoffs. Um, so I was sort of making it up as I went along. Uh, and then how that ended up going to tech was that after you've been on TV, you've been on the radio, you've been, uh, you know, standing next to these, you know, famous athletes, like, tech people didn't scare me at all. Um, even the ones that were worth billions of dollars. I actually appreciated the move to tech because sports, to me, became a little hollow after four-plus years doing the beat. It's entertainment. Like, it's the same thing day after day after day. One of the reasons I appreciated the move to tech was that I could actually study. Like, I'm sort of a constantly learning and uh like an ai like ai now um sort of um and so what went from fairly hollow entertainment to actually like world changing development um because i got in on in mobile fairly early and you know the idea of having a supercomputer in your pocket was fascinating to me uh and so i'm talking to the leaders of Nokia and BlackBerry and, to a certain extent, Google and Android and, uh, and Microsoft. And in the tech world, these are big names. To me, they're just people making cool stuff. Um, because I'm not going to have as much pressure interviewing them as interviewing six foot ten Zidane Chara and his skates, sweat dripping on me from his nose, of, you know, a foot above my head. Uh, you know, in a Czech or a Slovak accent, saying "What do you want?" Uh, yeah, so I, it was it was a good trial by fire. I, I I tend to like the idea of jumping in the deep end 
because it prepares you so much better for what's to come after that. You're just like mentally and sort of uh, emotionally prepared to get your ass kicked again once you've already had your ass kicked once. So I, I, I was curious, you, you moved down to DC, you were covering the Capitals. I think you got into some like government technology reporting mm -hmm, yeah. and like describe that exposure you first got to technology. Well, so um, I went down to DC to work at this uh, hyper local news news startup called TBD.com. It was supposed to be like the next great thing in local news. This is like, you know, as the news industry tries to come up with new business models and new ways of doing stuff. This was 2009, 10. Um, it was supposed to be this next big thing. Uh, owned by the same people who own Politico, so our news office, or our newsroom was in the same uh, as Politico and Channel 7 and Channel 8 down there at the time. It's since those channels have since been sold. But, but TBD didn't work. There are any variety of reasons, and that's a much longer podcast of why TBD.com didn't work. But I saw the writing on the wall. I was fairly low on their totem pole, so I started looking around for jobs. Applied for a thing called Government Computer News. And for some reason, I, they gave me the job. Um, the story of how I got that was that uh, I told the editor-at-large how I had taught myself baseball sabermetrics, like advanced baseball stats, which at the time weren't as prevalent as they are today. Uh, and he's like, well, if you can sort of learn that on your own, it shouldn't be hard to learn tech. Um, so next thing I knew, I was at Government Computer News covering mobile for, uh, for like basically government IT. And that sucked. And the government is like three years behind on all things tech. Like, you know, you want to know what's happening in government IT now, you just look at what was happening in 2015 because that's about where they are. Um, and it was dry and it was boring and um, I just, I didn't... I, I liked the topic, but the whole realm of the bureaucratic world in DC is just like soul sucking. Um, I remember going to the offices at HUD, Housing and Urban Development, interviewed their CIO, and they had these bright fluorescent lights, like no color in the room at all. Uh, and I was just like, do all government employees work like this? No wonder, like, the deep state is so neurotic. Because um, I think a lot of times DC gets this, like, like flashy, sexy thing from, like, these young politicos who, you know, just came in from a winning campaign. And that's, like, what gets a lot of the media. But the actual wheels of democracy are boring. They just are. And were you starting to eyeball your next move? You were into tech. You were not into this three years behind government tech, but you were kind of dug it, and you could use it as a springboard into more tech. To a certain extent, like I think you know, going back to uh, luck is the product of preparation and timing, um, opportunity is. I went down to Orlando for a conference and ran into the people at Read Write Web and said, hey, give me a job. Uh, Marshall Kirkpatrick. Um, and by the time I got off the plane in D.C. from that conference, I had a text message that was four text messages long 
back when they used to split them up by character. Uh, you know, saying, come work with us, here's your beat, here's your starting salary, leave government tech. And I was just like, yes, yes. What year was this? It was 2010, end of 10, into 11. 2010, that's the point where, all right, tech's kind of, in the economy in general, is rebounding a bit from the 2008 collapse. And it seemed, if I do recall correctly, there seemed to be a pretty strong resurgence in sort of like early seed stage a rounds because I was I, I was found myself on that side of sort of on the on the PR marketing side of that tech world and I remember Reed Wright being one of the it was like right there in conversations with TechCrunch the next web oh, yeah, venture we were, B. we were the big five at one point TechCrunch Reed Wright web giga ohm venture beat the next web all things D so five or six Mashable kind of fit into that category, but they started splitting off into culture. Um, like they started as like tech and social media, and then Mashable started split off into more culture after mm -hmm. uh, a couple of years. But yeah, those were sort of the big five, you know, indie tech blogs. Um, it's interesting, and you considered all things D, all albeit tethered to Wall Street Journal as more of a tech blog. Yeah, I mean that's how they that's how more they presented themselves, <clears throat> yeah. and that's even sort of how Recode presents itself now. Um, it's of course much more professional, and they have the conference and the red chairs and everything. But they were we considered them part of our world. So read right the read right years, those are those were interesting years. I feel like that's that's when I met you, yeah. Dan, Dan Rowinski, which is which is a good story for for listeners how we met. If you want to, if you want to share, and I think that was a couple years into your your tenure, where you read right was on its ascent, as was Dan Rowinski. I don't know if listeners will know the general antagonistic relationship between PR people and journalists, but uh, from a journalist standpoint, there are ten PR people to every journalist, and so they all want to know the best ways to pitch a journalist. So a couple of your uh, your buddies at Warriors at Shift. Mm -hmm. um, sent me an email. I was like, "Do you want to go get beer?" And I was like, "As a journalist, there's one thing you can usually buy me with, and it's beer. Um, you know, I won't accept you know gifts from companies or PR firms anything more than a drink or two." And you decided to just crash that meeting, um, and so that's how we met. Like, you got got there. Your colleagues wanted to talk to me about the best way to like pitch me, what stories they wanted. Like I would like to write about, and you just completely dominated the conversation to the point that they're just like, okay, we're gonna go, and then we end up hanging out all night. It's true. Well, we lived a few blocks from each other. You were a really smart guy in tech, and you enjoyed sports, and so I was more interested in the friendship than how can you write a story about my client tomorrow. Yeah, if if I recall, the clients you brought me, I didn't really want to write about. I tried it a couple times, but it just didn't really work. Uh, part of that is that you've always done a lot of advertising and I'm that's not something I've ever really liked to write yeah. about so um, so this is like 2012 things started to change at read write at that point but you still were there a few more years well yeah so it was fine for a while um, until say media basically had to 
divested itself of all its publications. So like Read Write and Exo Jane and Dodster and Catster and a couple others that they had. Because they just didn't know how to be publishers. Um, they just, it, they didn't. And so, you know, they promised us the world when we got there. But by the time it was over, they're just like, we don't, we never knew what we were doing. Um, so Read Write is actually still technically alive. But that kind of went into that internet shadow world where things are are live and they just never quite die but they are never going to be the same of what they were again part of this is a function of the death of it wasn't the death the evolution of web 2.0 from the blog social media world that was the heyday between say 2003 and maybe 2012 to the like primarily mobile world um like the death that the death of the professional blog really happened when smartphones became the primary means of consumption. Interesting. Or or the death of the professional blog as we had all seen it sort of occurred. That said, you left read write and you went and built a professional blog tethered to a for-profit business, ran it journalistically and from my perspective, it, it seems to me that it was a reinvention of a lot of what you had done at ReadWrite. Right. Well, so from, from a content perspective, I considered uh, ARC, the Application Resource Center, to be basically ReadWrite 4.0. We had gone through several iterations of ReadWrite over the years before I got there and while I was there. Um, so from a content perspective, I didn't really miss a beat. From a business perspective, ARC was interesting, right? So what happened is that I saw ReadWrite beginning its troubles. Um, and I was offered this gig to come be like this content guru at this tech company. And I turned it down. The first time they offered it, I actually turned it down. Uh, and then sort of that, that same evolution we were just talking about, the sort of slow death of Web 2.0, uh, continued. And I eventually was like, came back to them. I was like, man, maybe this is a good idea. Uh, and part of this stemmed from my fascination from grad school on uh, about sort of the, the future of news, right? And so I looked at the corporate world, or the, in this case, the tech world, and said, you know, if they can provide a vehicle for a new form of business model for content like this would be this could be pretty big and so we, we designed arc from i designed arc from the wireframes the business model the editorial strategy like everything from the ground up uh most of it from scratch um you know got got their designers that's the great thing of working at a company that uh has a little bit of money is that they already have the built-in infrastructure they already have the designers and the developers and the marketers and the pr people um and you just sort of step in and say hey i'm going to build this my own little empire there there are very few companies that would have taken this risk but matt johnston this uh, chief marketing and strategy officer at the time was very keen on getting the brand out there through editorial content and my stipulation was i'm going to do this like I'm a journalist. I'm not going to do it like a marketer. I'm not going to do it like a content marketer. Like I'm going to do this like a journalist. And he's like, great, here's a couple things you can't write about. And that's the tension when you 
have a brand as a publisher. And so, you know, we went from nothing, literally zero uh, page views to, you know, 100,000 a month, um, which isn't a lot, but when you're starting from scratch with a small staff, not bad. That's, get, a, lot, that's a lot of people. So, so for, uh, for a pause, for the company writing your paycheck, your writer's paycheck, funding the resources into ARC, it seems that they continued to do that for some years. So my guess is that what you were doing helped applause execute against some business goals it had. Yeah, so it eventually did evolve. Like the salespeople were reading ARC uh, so that they know what was going on in the industry. So when they turned around and talked to a client or a prospective client, uh, they knew sort of the landscape. You were helping the salespeople at Applause sound smart. Yeah, it was basically, it was sales enablement. It was education. Um, every once in a while, they'd pull me aside and go, "Hey, what do you know about you know this particular aspect of IoT or or this you know this sector of apps?" Uh, we also had a research division based on some of their internal data, which uh, helped lend some credibility to the publication coming out with our own original research. Um, and so ultimately it did prove useful in a variety of ways that I never intended. But that's probably in part why it was so useful because you weren't intending to use what you were like you're writing for marketing purposes. You were covering the market you were, as a journalist and as an editor, you were dictating to your writer, hey, here's what we need to cover. This is important to the market. Definitely wanted to cover what's coming next as much as we want to cover like what's happening now and what it means, um, we wanted to start looking ahead. And this is when sort of the apps revolution really kicked into high gear in say 12, 2012, 13. But by 2017, you could see it was starting to, and right now we're sort of in the middle of that, we're starting to see that change. And the next sort of market defining technologies are starting to become useful. We see that now in machine learning. Um, neural networks, deep learning, cognitive computing, uh, to a certain extent AR and VR, though I don't think that's necessarily ready or mature or will be anytime soon. But yeah, so we, we morphed our own editorial strategy to keep up with the changing business dynamic. And so, you know, a decade in, I started covering Blackberries uh, on the phone with Blackberry you know, with vis-a-vis -vis, like, you know, government tech to, I don't know, interviewing the makers of the most sophisticated AI out there at Google or Microsoft. Um, and that's kind of where I like to live. I kind of like to live on that what's happening next phase, but what, is, what does it mean to now and how what's it going to mean in a couple of years, uh, which ultimately is what led me to fiction. Nice segue into fiction. Final, final question on applause. All that work you put in, company sold, you didn't feel anything? No, not even a little bit. Not even a little bit. Uh, so I may have helped with their branding. Right. I may have helped uh, with my connections to pull in a couple deals. Mm -hmm. um, but I was always, and I did this on purpose a little bit, I always kind of set myself apart because Arc was a sort of a startup within a startup, and I had my own little fiefdom. And I kind of kept it away from the rest of the business. Um, 
And so when they had their success in terms of that, that acquisition, uh, it was a you know decent little windfall for me, but not really a personal uh, achievement. Achievement or yeah. Okay. It, I just I just didn't like. I was like, hey, good, good for you guys. Fair enough. And it did with that little windfall you just alluded to, uh, and and it turning the chapter, turning you into a, the next chapter in your life. Shortly thereafter, um, you wrote the Starving Bachelor. Which seemed to pour out of you rather quickly. I feel like that took like a month. It um, did. It took 32 days to write an 83,000 word book. Um, and to a certain extent, it just took, what, 25 minutes to tell the story on the podcast. Um, so The Starving Bachelor was about a fictionalized version of me as a young chef. And I've been meaning to write it for years. So it's like it had been percolating. But the problem is when you're a daily journalist, the last thing you want to do when you get home at night is write. Um... And so I'd been kicking around the idea of The Starving Bachelor for a long time. But once I just sat down and started writing, it just was like 5,000, 6,000 words at a time. And that adds up very quickly. And that's when I got the crash course in the book world. And it's like, it seemed like I was like, all right, I will write this and then I will go forth and find publishers. But it's not that easy. So that was after The Starving Bachelor was completed. Yes, the, the crash course in publishing. Yeah, and... You, how much time between then and your most recent book that you're that you're still working on, Muse AI, did you get going on that one? So, let's see. The first draft of Starving Bachelor was done in December. I kind of finished like the fifth draft in early February. I sent it out to some agents. Didn't hear back, but rejection sort of normal in that world. Um, and so I had the idea for Muse AI somewhere in the middle of February, and I started writing it at the end of February. This one took a little bit longer. I actually finished it in first draft in July. Uh, and then I started editing it and um, applied to a contest called Pitch Wars in late August. So that was the period, maybe five, five-ish months uh, for that book, which took me maybe two or three months with The Starving Bachelor. But it was a much different story. Um, I'm fascinated with, with Muse AI. I, it, for, for listeners, it, this, is a, this is a fun way to sort of tease out what, what I look forward to you figuring out the, the best way to ultimately publish. But the Greek muses are the guide to a book about cognitive computing and artificial intelligence and a lot of the scary things that we think about in our future, I think, are, are rather, um, like, ironically humanized through Greek mythology. Um, if, I, if I were to um, <laughs> summarize it very succinctly, what is, like, a, an expansive range of topics you explore in the book, but how would you sort of top-line share with folks what the book's about? And, and I'd love to kind of double-click on a few things that, that I experienced in being one of the lucky early beta readers right so so the book is about the history of the singularity like the the you know how computers gain consciousness um but the reason that they the, that is guided by greek muses is that you know muses are the origin of sort of creativity people's like 
you know, writing a song, it's like, where's my muse? And a muse can be anything. It can be a beautiful tree, a sunset, you know, your significant other, whatever. Whatever sort of, you know, inspires creativity in you, people sort of use the term muse. Um, and in writing, writing, especially writing books, uh, all published authors give very similar advice, which is don't wait for your muse. Because if you wait for your muse, you could go weeks between putting words on paper. And this gave me the idea to sort of in, infuse those into the story I'd been thinking about, about, you know, the, the dawning of consciousness, but using current tech, people, tech that current engineers would recognize. So uh, quantum computing, cognitive computing, uh, deep learning and neural networks, put those together, shake them up, and maybe in you know, 10 to 70 years, we'll have actual conscious AI. But it was also, be, it was derivative of the idea that you can't automate creativity, right? Creativity is one of the things that sets humanity sort of apart from the machine world that we have created and also say maybe the animal world um, to a certain extent. Yes, I know that there have been instances, and even you know, you see commercials of like a, a dog painting a picture and stuff like that. And and maybe they are creative, and we just don't understand that their creativity. But creativity and the ability to inspire and create art is definitely sort of one of our most defining characteristics. Um, and I wanted to explore that and the push and pull between humanity and machine, because we've been making machine tools for. 10,000 years uh, and every time we go through an iteration of technology a portion of human labor is displaced um, for instance in, a, in, the, in one of the early drafts of the book I don't think it's in there now but um, one of the early drafts in the book I use the plow as an example so before you know to till a field you had to literally you know drag a tool across the ground um, and then the plow came along, you hook it to a, an ox, and it does it for you. So what had to be done either by one person with a lot of labor or a bunch of people with a little bit of labor is done by an animal, right? So the next phase is like, well, what else does the farmer do with their time? And we've seen that over and over again, you know, the cart and buggy being replaced by the automobile or the notion of just logic, right? Um, Computing used to be done on Abacus, and then we got these great things called computers. And it took away all the sort of hard logic problems, and we put them into a binary system um, that we now call sort of digital. And so this happens over and over again, and this is about to happen again. The age of information as we know it now is going to repla be replaced soon by the age of automation. And that's where I wanted to go with this book, was to explore all those topics with a you know the fictional twist of a um a conscious ai at the end of it and also that notion of consciousness was very much fascinating to me because we don't know what how our brains work we just don't and it's very difficult sort of to even define the notion of consciousness uh and so when you're trying to create a conscious computer you if you don't know the definition of consciousness you don't know where you are in the spectrum both the techies and the sort of neuroscientists of the world have kind of figured out some step marks, like the Turing test and so on and so forth. But 
um, there's a good chance we could get conscious computers and they can be conscious for 10 years before we even know it, depending on what our definition of consciousness is. And so that's sort of what I explore with the book. The, the muses are sort of the driving action of that, uh, inspiring these technologists to create a, a conscious AI along the way. Amazing. What is it that you hope for people to take away from reading the book? I, you know, I don't know. It's kind of, from an author's standpoint, it's really hard to tell people what they think. Um, once I create something that's no longer mine, and I saw this for years in journalism, like I write something, I intend it to mean this, I put it out in the world, and all of a sudden I'm getting comments and social media feedback, and it's like, we think it means this, something else entirely. And I'm just like, well, okay. Um, so I don't, I don't like the idea of like, you know, putting a book out there and saying, here, I'm teaching this lesson. It's like, no, here, I'm going to provide this interesting story, and once it leaves me, it's yours. One contention I make is that if, if anything, you walk away from the book at least better understanding the manner in which technology is automating our lives, and then it's up to you to decide how, you know, what that means, how that positively or, or uniquely or negatively impacts your life and all that. But at, at, at a minimum, it's a fun lens through which you, you can understand technology, which is very difficult to understand, but also obfuscated in the way that media generally covers AI. Right. Well, right now, the notion of AI is very breathless. It's very oh my God, AI is coming and it's going to change everything. And to a certain extent, that is true. But I've always been trying to be a pragmatist about it. Um, innovation doesn't happen overnight. Like, it happens in small increments. It took 40 years for the first cell phone to become the smartphone. And all these little things had to happen in between uh, from hundreds of different actors. GPS by the government, uh, by the military radio waves, um, text messaging, uh, the just the notion of the GUI um, interface, personal computing, all these things had to come together to create what became a smartphone. And it took years. And then a company like Uber comes along and takes a lot of those things and creates its own company. Uh, one of the reasons I actually didn't cover Uber in the beginning was, was like, this isn't a tech company. It's just using everybody else's tech to apply to transportation. Uh, little did I know at the time that that was going to be a $120 billion business. Um, yeah, I missed that one. It happens. Yeah, it does. Uh, but so like the next generation, it's going to seem like it happens quickly, but that life happens quickly. Mm. Like, we're both in our mid-30s. We're going to blink and we're going to be 40. And it didn't seem, you know, it seemed like a long time. And it also didn't seem like a long time. Innovation is very much the same. Like, it it takes time for these little increments to build up. You look at what the iPhone was in 2007 and what it is today. It's just like night and day. It's like completely different kinds of devices. But along the way, we said, hey, this isn't all that much different from the last one. Hey, this isn't all that much different from the last one until you actually look at you know, iterations five, 10 years apart and you're like, holy crap, these are no way these are the same thing. Right. 
Uh, and this is sort of how the automation age is going to happen. It's going to happen in increments. Uh, you know, machine learning is going to going to make a breakthrough in, I don't know, you know, visual understanding, like uh, computational cortex. And then cognitive computing is going to take a step. And then quantum computing is going to take a step. And next thing you know, like everything is taking small steps together until all of a sudden they take a big leap together. Uh, and that's... That's sort of where I put it together in the book. And then, then there's the standing question of computer, can, computers can ever gain consciousness. Personally, I actually don't believe they, they can. Like, that's why I take these Greek muses and have them actually imbue consciousness into it. It's sort of like my big fuck you to the system. It's like all these engineers in San Francisco are saying, yes, we're going to create conscious computers. We're going to create real artificial general intelligence and it's just like I'm not sure it's possible so I'm going to give you a helping hand here and actually have deities do it for you um, so there's a little there's it's a little bit of a twist and if I hadn't explained that to people they might not actually get it but uh, I love I love that is, th is that that is this the start of is this the new norm for Dan Rowinsky like is this book of like the first and in, in what you anticipate being a series or is this is this book the launch of of a set of intentions for you to like maybe go on a road show and and speak to engineers in san francisco no. and laymen in 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 dc that don't understand the automation wave that's coming and and explain to them what there there are a lot of people much smarter than me already doing this i don't really feel the need to interject my name into that stream um, for me, what makes me happiest right now is being in the middle of the story. Uh, I used to get this feeling as a journalist, like, you know, doing the research and uncovering the steps. But now, instead of it coming externally, like, you know, say from you, like a PR person and then a research paper and so on and so forth until I have an article. Now it's all coming internally. Like, I, like, I think about my characters at all times. Uh, they're sort of with me when I walk down the street, and they're with me when I'm on the tee. They're with me when I'm reading a book. Um, and from just a work standpoint, I've never been happier than when I've been 40,000 words into a, a, a story with a general idea of what's going to happen next. Because it, And any you know, fiction writer who's done this a couple times will tell you that's the fun part, right? It's sort of a slog, but life is a slog. And if I'm going to slog through it, I might as well be doing something I want to do. So more fiction writing. It sounds like you've, you've, you've found the, your North Star is you have, I'm assuming, and if there's any else you'd like to share, you have, more, you have more stories in you where you generally know where you want to get to. And your favorite thing is to get 10, 20, 30, 40,000 words in, have a general knowledge of where you're looking to get to, and have a bunch of work to do as you're in the midst of that story Helping get it succinctly down on the paper, that that's what that's your art. Yes, very much so at this point. Now there, there then comes the realities of the book world. Things take forever. Really, only the top, um, top names really get paid and can afford to do it on a full time basis, and that's aspirational. That's sort of what I'm reaching towards. I don't think. Um, I don't necessarily think Muse AI will go set the world on fire, even if, even if it's called Muse AI at the by the time it's published, if it's ever published. Um, but 
you just kind of keep at it. You write the next book, and you write the next book, and you write the next book. And so hopefully I can get to a point where that's what I do for a living. Because um, I seem to be changing careers every ten years. I was a chef, and then I was a journalist, and now I'm writing books. I just, for listeners, I just touched Dan's arm because I just thought of an important question I want to ask you. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the, the question is, you just mentioned you've switched careers a lot, and you, and you have. One thing you once did but haven't done in a while is switch geographies. So I'd be curious, walk us through where you've been, you know, because <laughs> that, that's interesting. But also, I'd like to double-click on... Why, through the various recent iterations Dan Rowinski has gone through, from beat, from, from beat Reporter to Read Write, sort of that transition firmly landed you in Cambridge, Somerville, and then from Read Write to Applause, from Applause to Book Author, these last few iterations of Dan have, have been firmly cemented here in Greater Boston. So I'm just curious because you've 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 lived some different places. Oh, like, yeah, wh- where, where have you lived? So I grew up in Maine, um, 16, 17 years in Maine, and then my parents moved my senior year of high school to Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, and that was a good place to learn to be an adult. Charlottesville, um, I call it sort of a starter city. It's good, uh, a great restaurant scene. That's sort of how I ended up staying in the, in that world. I started as a dishwasher in Maine. And then Charlottesville is such a great restaurant town that I sort of just got lost in that world for several years. Um, I moved to Boulder, Colorado, somewhere in the middle of that. Uh, Stayed there for a year, worst year of my life. I was like 21 and I had no idea what the hell I was doing. Um, Every sort of social faux pas, foot in my mouth, stumble I could do, I did in Boulder. Um, That sucked. Crawled back to Charlottesville. Uh, moved to Richmond, Virginia shortly after that. Um, spent some time in Seattle. Then I ended up coming up here for grad school. And then after grad school and a couple things, I ended up at DC uh, at TBD. And then once I could have decided where I wanted to be, I came back to Boston. What was it about Boston that drew you back? Well, New England. New England is home. So growing up in Maine, when I left, it was unfinished business. Um, but if I'm going to live in New England, I'm not going to live in the middle of nowhere in Maine. At least I wasn't when I came back. Uh, I'm going to live in Boston and be, have the ability to go to Fenway when I want to. Um, you know, be, be around the tech hub, make sure there's a major airport nearby, stuff like that. Uh, what so, is it about Somerville and Cambridge? You you live in Inman Square and you're right on the line, so you get the best of both worlds. Camberville, right? <laughs> uh, so Inman is great. It's it's about a mile from Central Square, a mile from Harvard, and a mile and a half from MIT. So I can have access to all those things, the T, uh, education, culture, whatever, without being right next to them. Um, so I walk everywhere. In Somerville, and it's, you, in the summer, if you are in the general Camberville area, there's a good chance you'll see me on the street. Um, and so, for me, Boston is just home. New England is home. Uh, how much longer that will be the case, who knows? But um, there's very few places in the country that offer what Boston has to offer, like 
it's a major world city. It has some of the smartest people. Just strike up a a conversation at a bar in Cambridge, and next thing you know, you're going to be talking about like quantum fusion. Well, just uh, go or, try to enter. There's a trivia night at every bar it seems in Cam- Cambridge, Somerville, or anywhere, and the teams are usually made up of students from Tufts and MIT and Harvard. Go try, go try to go try to win a trivia game at a bar in Boston. It's pretty difficult. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> it, it's hard, and especially when everybody's using their phones. But um. Yeah, you know, they're talking about, like, Einstein-Rosen bridges and stuff like that. Like, they actually understand what they're talking about. Uh, there's a great joke. I used to have a Border Collie. I love Border Collies. Um, and I see a Border Collie in uh, in Min, and I stop the owner and say, Hey, Border Collie, very smart dogs, because they're incredibly smart, right? Um, and she's like, yes, yes. And I was like, oh, I used to have a Border Collie, and it could translate Nisha from the original German. And the lady goes... Oh, it's Cambridge. I thought everybody could do that. I'm just like, that's where I live. That's it. Well played. All right, I think I think we're gonna cut there and revisit all of this in a future podcast. Cool. Dan, thanks for being here. Thank you, Zach. Thank you.